Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am not Nomiki Const. In fact, I am Arun Chaudhary, a friend of the show and often guest of the show. But this is my first guest host appearance, and I'm really stoked. Uh, if she is Johnny Carson, then I would like you to think of me as Joan Rivers. Uh, but more specifically, I am uh, Nomiki's friend who is a political creative consultant. I work on lots of campaigns, lots of progressive campaigns, came out of Obama world, then Bernie world. And now I live in Europe where I've started a, a small company that's trying to tell stories to counter the far right nativist movement that we've seen explode all over the world. And I think um, hopefully tonight, we'll not just get to the things that were already planned, but even have what I'm calling some cross-Atlantic crosstalk and we'll talk to some international friends. And you can hear more about uh, what's going on over here on this side of the pond. I'm coming to you right now, live from Berlin. And uh, if any of you have any questions, I think maybe we can formalize this in the future in a better way, but just you know, tweet them at me. And while I'm on here, if I can answer them, I'd be happy to do it. But again, this is just the beginning, I think we'll have lots to say and lots to do. And I'm really excited about tonight because actually we're hitting on three very important different issues. Uh, the first is gonna be surveillance, uh, where we are talking with Albert Kahn, Albert Fox Kahn, who is an author who has written extensively about this. Uh, we're bringing him on in a moment. And then we have uh, our panel with Jordan Zakharin and, um, sorry, I need to look up, and Mike Beyer. Uh, who are progressives and we're actually going to really get into it on Biden and kind of the things that are happening, not happening, what we expect, what we want. And then finally, for our cross-Atlantic crosstalk, we'll be bringing on three uh, campaigners international, one the U.S., Julia Doubleday, who is a Democrat uh, and has been campaign manager for many folks and is comes out of Bernie world, you will all will not be too surprised. Uh, and then Elime O'Hagan from the UK, who's the head of a think tank up there and does a lot of strategic communications work. And then finally, Ludovico Manzoni from Italy, because Italy has been an absolute crisis filled mess. And I just even hope that he can start to scratch the surface of explaining for our audience some of what has happened and how it all ties into what I am calling tonight's sort of through line, which is revenge of the center. Revenge of the center. The center is, I think, one of the most misunderstood places in politics. The center, uh, since it isn't a place of strong ideologies, ends up being a place of strong politics. I think it's not an accident that when you take the French Revolution, your classic, you know, left and right swings, it was a directory, the most centrist, ended up having the biggest body count. I think it's sort of not an accident that the strongest, most aggressive uh, politics we've seen often comes out of the center. And, and that's something that we're going to talk about uh, coming at from, from a number of different angles. Uh, and finally, just a big shout out to any of my friends out there who were ever in, uh, in Junior Statesman of America, the JSA, because that actually is the origin story of how I know know me from the beginning. Both of us went to this political door camp uh, 10 years apart, but the same program. And I think you find your friends through all of these ways, you know, kind of like if you go to university, the people who you don't uh, hang out in orientation with people who they skip all the events that kind of become your friends. I think sort of uh, uh, we have a very have had a similar look at politics being people who've been fascinated with it our whole lives, but approaching it from both this insider and outsider status. So I hope this is the first of many times. I thank you so much for bearing with me and I apologize for not being the woman in charge. She will be back on tomorrow and hopefully is returning with lots of really, really good footage from Puerto Rico. 
where she's been doing A plus reporting on things that are not being talked about. Okay, uh, so our first guest, if we are ready, is Eric Kahn. Sorry, Albert Kahn. I said Eric. I don't, I don't know why I did that. Uh, he is actually not here yet, so we will be waiting for him uh, for a minute. But when we're talking about the issue that he's talking about surveillance, I think a lot of it is the first things that we're really concerned uh, when a lot of us saw what happened in the Capitol and saw some of the reactions to it. So I'm really going to be asking him about this in terms of a lot of Patriot Act 2 kind of context. And we'll be right back with him and we'll take it from there. Okay, growing pains, just learning how it all works. Uh, we will not have Albert, our first guest, with us for another couple minutes. Uh, so first, I'm going to take the time to talk about the thing I wanted to talk about, and I didn't know that I have time to, which is, look, you see me basically in two different ones. One is my look here right now in front of this bookshelf with the Berlin book so that you know that I'm in Berlin. Uh, and then the other one is that beautiful kitchenette, that, the black and white, looks like Melania Trump decorated it. And that is because, much like Melania Trump, it is from the former Yugoslavia in Kosovo, where I have been working for the last several weeks and reporting out to, to Namiki from. And actually, tonight, since we're talking about the revenge of the center and its many permutations and in as many ways, uh, it very gladdens me to bring in the report that the left actually had a strong, strong victory in last Sunday's election in Kosovo on Valentine's Day. And uh, I think it's a real bright point for a lot of folks in the movement worldwide. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why. Because um, Vet Vendoja is, is the name of the party who won, the center-left party in Kosovo. And that literally translates into self-determination. And what we see with Vet Vendoja in Kosovo is the realignment of the left with national liberation as an actual project. You know, oftentimes, and I, and I think we'll have other times, other episodes to go into this more firmly, but one of the most comfortable traps to fall in is to immediately seize upon anything that uses the word nationalism as being bad and saying something is nationalistic. And this was the pejorative term uh, applied to Vet Mendoza by the center right there and by a lot of the more corporate elements to try to sort of you know, keep them down. And in fact, in a way that's very effective. But when you actually get on the ground and you see what movements are doing in places like Kosovo, it's this marriage of a patriotic political project with social democracy that actually gives critical mass for liftoff. And so uh, you had a situation in which not only the sort of standard, probably more like American Democrats kind of, uh, but with a, a tinge of old school kind of gangsterism, LDK, who is uh, one of the main opposition parties, but still represents a kind of new generation of leadership, as opposed to the older parties, which are sort of from independence. As you know, Kosovo is only 13 years independent, and it's only been around for a, a, a small amount of time. But this marriage of these two projects has given a lot of the disaffected people, it's given a positive place for people who hate politics to go. And when you think about it, where is that place in the US? We don't really have it. In fact, I'm gonna be pressing our second panel a bit on this uh, when it comes to the DSA and things about if we do have a place for people who are interested in any kind of, uh, who hate politics, 
but who actually believe in, in a welfare state, any place for them to go and them to fight for. And the emerging consensus is, you've heard me talk about it on the Miki show many times, the emerging consensus is that people want things to be more sustainable and more fairer. They just don't trust people to get done. And so if you can't wrap up your political project in something that means something to them, something as strong as anti-colonialism, something as strong as anti-corporatism, something as strong as a, what some would call a nationalist or a populist tinge to it, you often can't get the goods. So anyway, the good news is that there was a big victory for the left in Kosovo, Vet Vendosia, and their leader, Alvin Kurdi, are poised to take power in the next few weeks. And I think we have a new model and hopefully we can have some folks on and talking about the organizing model that they use, which is something a little more rough and tumble, a little different, and I think something that is desperately called for in Western Europe and in the US. Uh, our friend Albert is here, Albert Fox Khan, uh, surveillance expert, and so we are gonna get into it with him. Thanks to everyone in the live chats on YouTube and Twitch, and don't forget to like and subscribe and do all the things that you're supposed to do online, and we will come right back with Albert. So let's welcome everyone back to the Namiki Show together. Albert Fox Khan is the founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which is a messaging guy, I will tell you, conveniently spells stop, which is very good, uh, and is a member of the Ashoka Fellowship Network, a fellow at the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU School of Law, and is a columnist for the Gotham Gazette. Um, just before we even get into it, can you tell us more about your organization and sort of, you know, your, it, it would be the origin story, as someone like me would call it. Yeah, no. So basically, the origin story was uh, basically the nerdy Voltron of bringing all of these different passions together of civil rights work, technology work, interfaith activism. You know, I grew up in New York as uh, someone who protested against police violence since I was 12 years old, working on interfaith community organizing since high school. And, you know, after a very brief foray in corporate law, I, I went into uh, public interest work as uh, at the Council on American Islamic Relations, where I was uh, helping to run their New York chapter as their first lawyer and really looking at what the impact of the Trump administration was on the Muslim community here in New York, doing a lot around the Muslim ban, doing a lot around uh, hate crimes. But I was also doing a lot of work around NYPD surveillance, looking at all of the ways that even though we had had the same privacy debates, same technology debates about surveillance since I was in high school, we had seen this like radical shift in the ways that our local police departments were spying on New Yorkers in particular. It was happening all across the country, but was particularly bad here. And so I founded STOP in 2019 with a commitment of trying to push back against state and local government surveillance, trying to push back against things like facial recognition and artificial intelligence. And we do that by suing a lot of people. We do a lot of media engagement, a lot of op-eds, a lot of, we write a lot of laws. We, we advocate at City Hall in, in Albany, and we do workshops to try to empower people with the tools they need to keep themselves and their community safe. And if there was a spectrum of absolute unsurveilled lawless paradise versus say London, where does New York and the US generally, where are we right now? Oh, I would say we're worse than London and we're between London and Shanghai. 
I okay, mean, so tell me more about that. So even with, uh, with that we don't have uh, as many cameras places, we are approaching Shanghai levels. Please unpack that. Well, I mean, the, London has famously had its ring of steel at the uh, massive uh, uh, expansion of CCTV around the city. But in New York, we have something called the Domain Awareness System, which has grown to be more than 30,000 cameras around uh, New York City. It's growing by the day. But on top of that, we use uh, facial recognition and other systems to turn any person's cell phone, any bystander video, any footage that we can get our hands on into another NYPD camera. And, and so so there uh, we see the real power of biometric tracking to reshape the power of these systems. We have drones. We just released a, our first robotic dog yesterday, a $70,000 uh, drone that is the creepiest thing you've ever seen. And basically, and there is a Black Mirror episode that warns us about exactly this. And yet the NYPD spent a small fortune to get a robotic drone, a uh, robotic dog that doesn't have any real public safety benefits, but looks terrifying. Um, on top of that, we have um, you know a, a lot of different data capture systems throughout the city. We built something called you know uh, we built in that domain awareness system I mentioned a, an intelligence nerve center that pulls all of this data, the MetroCard data, the Omni data, all of the data about Ubers and ride shares, all of this data that gets captured in our our, our everyday life, puts it in one place analyzes us and uses that to try to create this uh, domestic intelligence infrastructure. So it's even like in the sort of internal arms race, I guess, that happens inside surveillance technology. It's the ability to gather lots of information versus the ability to interpret that information. Is the dangerous upswing that you're seeing that we are getting better and better, perhaps using AI, some other tools, at interpreting these vast amounts of data quickly uh, that we should be more worried than we used to, where it's like, yeah, they collect this stuff, who knows what happens. That's the thing about AI. It can be super powerful, but it can also be easily broken. And so we see with facial recognition, we've seen a lot of people who are wrongly arrested. We've seen the documented error rates that, you know, uh, mean that someone who looks like me is much more accurately identified than a darker skinned woman of color, particularly a black woman. We also have seen that there are social media monitoring sites that use artificial intelligence to try to scrape data from people's Facebook profiles, from Twitter, from whatever social media sites are actually cool with people who are young these days, and basically use those to create these vast warehouses of data on the one hand, and then to do analytics on top of that to try to de determine who's quote unquote a threat. But the AI, it, it, it's really good at making generalizations, but it's really bad at actually predicting the future. And when we try to predict who's going to commit a crime in the future, what okay. we often do is just create a system that asks who looks like the people who we have arrested in the past. Raise your hand if you're poor. Yeah, stand up and be counted, basically. Exactly. And, and it's sort of like this veneer of objectivity. Like we, we hear about this stuff and it's like, oh, maybe this will be less racist than that the cops who normally make these decisions. But the systems are being trained on the basis of human decisions. You know, they're not coming to together fully formed just out of the blue. They are a construct. We make them and we make them in our image. And when we make policing AI, we make it biased just like us, but we make that bias even more powerful. 
So we're at an interesting political moment. And I guess I would like to know what you're seeing. You know, you get invited to speak at lots of things. I bet you the person across the table is starting to change a little bit. You know, you're talking a lot about sort of keeping an eye on the police who will watch the police um, and, and some of this. Now you're having a lot of folks, uh, liberal folks, obviously like pushing really hard uh, because of uh, after the sixth and wanting to see these faces, let's make sure we arrest all of these people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are you surprised by some of the shifting sands you're seeing or tell me how this ebbs and flows because you've been around the block more than once. This is not your first rodeo. It's painful. It's also painfully predictable. When I saw the images from the Capitol, I wanted to do anything I could to put those people behind bars. It was so painful seeing that happen, that sort of attack on our country, on, on democracy itself, an attempt to overthrow an election by force. And that sort of pain, that sort of anger, that, that sort of you know, desire for revenge, we've seen where it takes us. After Oklahoma City, we, you know, Oklahoma City attack, we saw one of the deadliest domestic terrorist attacks in US history. We saw the right-wing extremists kill uh, more than 100 Americans, so many children, and we responded with a broad new federal law that was designed to go after right-wing extremists. It was called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Horrible name. Yeah, just we call it EDPA. A little on the nose. <laughs> yeah. And, and what we saw with that law is what happens all the time. You know, we pass something in the name of fighting right-wing extremists, and then in practice, those tools are then weaponized against communities of color. This is the law, EDPA, that enabled the Trump administration to go on a killing spree and execute more inmates in its final weeks in office than had been executed in the more than a half century before Trump came to power. Over, very much disproportionately Black and Latinx inmates. It's the same law that's been used to uh, give incredibly lengthy sentences, again, overwhelmingly, for, for, uh, for defendants of color. And, and so the, the tools we give police in the name of fighting the right wing are going to be used by those police against communities of color because the police didn't need new tools to stop the insurrection. They had the tools. I've been, I've been to so many protests at the Capitol. I've seen the way they respond to peaceful, permitted protesters exercising the First Amendment, their First Amendment rights, and they respond with a level of force that went far beyond what they were willing to do when you had armed criminals who were white and conservative. And, and so we have the police departments using their failure to actually use the powers that they have as a justification to get even more powers with absolutely no safeguards to show us that they will do a better time uh, next time in actually treating the right wing as the threat it is, especially when we're learning every day about even more officers who were not fighting back against the insurrection. They were part of it. And we've all watched enough police dramas to know at some point it's not the new fancy gadget that it's police work. That's how you get people. It's police work. I assume it was through phone books and going through all kinds of old fashioned ways that in 2000, 2001, when they were rounding up every anarchist in New York ahead of protests, you know, I mean, you remember they, they were like literally in every local anarchist club meeting that was happening. So they have the ability to do these things without, without the gadgets. How do the gadgets get involved? Like I would love your perspective right now because it hasn't happened yet. 
But when there will be some legislation coming off of January 6th, and when some of it mandates that new technology, uh, new cameras be bought, like, just tell us what, what is that going to look like and who are the people who we should be watching to sort of just watch this parade get started? Yeah, if there's one word to take away from this whole thing, it's techno-solutionism. It's this idea that technology will solve everything, that, you know, Figuring out how to reform policing, that's hard. Figuring out how to dismantle right-wing extremism, that's hard. But somehow the thought is if you just wave a magical technical algorithmic wand at it, everything's going to be okay. But the, the, the truth is that the reason we keep seeing pushes to expand use of facial recognition and other surveillance technologies is there are a lot of companies making a lot of money off of it. Firms like Clearview AI, which saw its use rate go up by more than 30% the week after the attack. We we see other vendors that are continuing to sell their tools as a response to the insurrection. And, and basically, when you're a surveillance company, you have one solution. And your goal is to convince everyone that it's the solution to whatever problem they care about. You know, Last year, they were focused on trying to repurpose a lot of these surveillance tools as COVID-19 uh, contact tracing totally. devices. <laughs> and now it's the solution to the insurrection, but really it's just another payday. You know, I think people really don't realize this. Like one of the things you see when you work on a presidential campaign, for instance, is you know, the, your candidate will speak quickly at a mayor's conference or something, or just like any other trade conference, except it's a trade that's very often in the hallways and in the booths is security. It's tasers and like high-speed beanbags and cameras technology. And these people are out there selling, selling, selling. Um, but again, you're on the front lines. You can tell us. Um, I mean, do you think that the soft underbelly into preventing some of this stuff, uh, you know, the worst aspects of Patriot Act too, is it a legal challenge or is it a political challenge or is it both? And, I, and what, what does the landscape look like? It's all of the above and it's community driven grassroots mobilization, right? I don't think any legal opposition stands a chance if you don't have people on the ground standing up, having, you know, having their voices heard and saying that this is not how they want their communities policed. You know, I've never seen a, a, a legal strategy change the United States where you didn't have that broader backing uh, from the public. I think that we're definitely going to need to see uh, a, a political response. But I also think that some of the best work we're seeing in this space is coming at the state and local level. We continue to see amazing work, you know, here in New York, in California, in Vermont, where they pass a facial recognition ban. There are all of these places where we're seeing pushback against the growth of these surveillance tools. And my biggest fear is that when we see Patriot Act II, when we see whatever domestic terrorism legislation is coming, that not only will it not go far enough in protecting against these sort of abuses, but industry is going to swoop in and use that as a chance to preempt the state and local laws that are already on the books. Because the thing that industry wants more than anything, it's, a, it's the appearance of regulation while really wiping out any of the local bills that actually have teeth. Uh, and do you think there's any, look, talking about the politics of this, we can't get past the politics of it because now we're talking about the politics of policing. And you even saw kind of Democrats did not do as well as they had hoped in the 2020 election, uh, Donald Trump pushed aside. 
uh, I would say a majority of folks critiquing the party on that said things like defund the police, defund the police, uh, was a message that does not resonate with Americans. I do think the police don't need tanks uh, was something that did resonate. Um, just look, you know, you're doing advocacy work in this area. Uh, have you been tailoring your message? Are you been thinking yes. about some of these things? What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Yeah, so my philosophy is that when it comes to privacy and civil rights, one size fits none. If you try to approach this with a single message to appeal to all Americans, you're going to fail every time because you're going to talk about abstract values that don't really resonate with their lives. But there are aspects of facial recognition and other surveillance tools like cell phone data collection, reverse search warrants that really creep people out across the political spectrum. Look, this is one of the only issues where AOC and Jim Jordan agree. When they were on the oversight committee last year hearing about facial recognition, they didn't like it. They both were worried about the potential for abuse. And there's a lot of messaging opportunities here to go after conservatives as well. Like for them, imagine the threat of having a facial recognition camera or automated license plate reader that tracks every single person that goes to church or every single person at a gun show or any single person at any place where you have that sensitivity of being tracked. And, and, and you know, really um, part of what we do at STOP is we partner with local groups in different communities to come up with a messaging platform that works best for their community because we know that what resonates in Brooklyn is definitely not gonna be the best messaging approach for a campaign in the middle of Ohio. I think Michael Bloomberg found this out with, especially with the mayors against gun violence, especially, you know, sending yeah. out Brooklynites in Frappuccino glasses to talk to actual human beings did not work out well. But dig into that a little deeper. Tell us some about some of these unlikely alliances that you're forging, because I find these stories to be the most politically interesting when people, especially in the progressive community, are looking around for things they can do. It's like, make some new friends, make some different friends. You're making some new friends. Tell me about them. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where it's really important to be able to stay true to your principles, stay accountable to the values that bring you to this work, but also find strategic opportunities to partner with people who may not be fully aligned with you on how you think about the, the values questions, but want the same outcome. So I, I'm thinking about the parents in a small rural community in Ohio that reached out to us because they were concerned about a new Bluetooth contact tracing product that was being rolled out in their community. You know, this is the type of product that it doesn't actually help with public health. It doesn't help uh, track the spread of COVID-19, but it's really good at automating the school to prison pipeline. It's really good at exposing uh, undocumented kids to ICE. There's a lot of issues there, but the way I just messaged it now is not the way I was messaging it when we were dealing with uh, the Ohio School Board and talking instead about how do you focus on fiscal responsibility? How do you focus on the fact that this is a boondoggle? How do you leverage the fact that there are concerns about big government when framed in a non-law uh, enforcement way that can actually resonate with the same themes? Because I think we're so hyper-polarized right now that if you don't frame everything in the right packaging, people will reject it no matter how much they agree with the underlying facts. That's my last messaging question for you. Like, I think, is, is the big enemy here just the complacency of 
don't they already know every possible thing about me? How can I stop it? Either I can do a million things that are 99% ineffective or do nothing and know I'm being 100% ineffective. Yeah, surveillance fatalism, I think, is particularly strong in like more yeah. privileged ally circles where you have people where they don't need to worry about that data being collected by an ad tech vendor because they're not worried that it's going to then be sold to ICE to deport their family because everyone in their family is documented. I think it's reminding more privileged allies that, hey, even if you personally are okay with this data being collected, what about the communities that you've been saying for the last four years that you're going to always stand with? What about the people who are worried that if they show up to a protest and they get flagged in a you know DHS database, that their mother or their grandmother is going to be ripped away from them and sent uh, to a country that you know they barely remember? I think that that is a big part of it because it is so different for for so many of us what it means to be tracked and what it means to have this data collected, and remembering that like with any aspect of law enforcement. At the end of the day, you can't assume that the ramifications are the same for everyone, especially when you're speaking from a very privileged uh, position. Just take advantage of every minute that we have you. What is the next big fight uh, coming up in this sphere, and how can any of the listeners get involved? And we're also going to play StopSpying.org, which is your website, and which it was a good handle to be able to grab. That was a good move. Oh, I love that URL. I'm for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> completely. Well, there's a deadline right now between uh, before uh, tomorrow night, February 25th, where people can uh, submit comments to the NYPD under the POST Act, the Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology Act. This is the first law ever passed to comprehensively uh, cover NYPD surveillance. And under it, they are required to give us a policy for every spy tool they use. And we have pre-formatted comments uh, on, the, on the Post Act website where you can go click and, and submit those comments in seconds. And, and once you do, it gives us another tool to push back against uh, the NYPD spy and to demand that they end things like geolocation tracking and, and make sure that they end facial recognition. That's amazing. And so if people sign up here on your website, what should they expect uh, to happen? Uh, so if they go uh, to that website and, and click on uh, legislation, and then they, they can go to uh, um, Post Act, that will include more information about it. And they can also go to postact.org. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to submit comments directly. That That's a uh, the website where we have those pre-formatted comments. We've seen over 7,000 yep. this week. Um, and the, the next thing I just want to flag is that uh, people are talking about facial recognition now. We'll keep talking about it for a while. But geolocation tracking, the ability of the government to use our phones instead of our faces to track everything we do, that is going to be a major, major fight in the coming months. And we have a bill to outlaw it here in New York. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this stuff. I mean, it's things that we really, really need to be paying attention to. I hope you'll all go to stopswying.org so you can get more of this information uh, from Albert Fox Khan and his organization. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then up next, Jordan Sakarin and Mike from Pennsylvania can join the show for their usual panel. Hey everybody. 
thanks for coming back and joining us on the Nomiki Show. Uh, you will notice that I am still not Nomiki Konst. However, I am still the guest host, otherwise known as Joan Rivers to her Johnny Carson, Arun Chaudhary to Nomiki Konst. Uh, normally, this is the panel with Jordan and oh my God, and we are, both of them are popping on right here, right now, but I'm going to introduce Mike first because he was totally on time and that's how we operate around here on the Nomiki Konst show when Nomiki's not here. Uh, so let me just quickly introduce our two panelists and just say hello. I'm Iran. It's really nice to see you both. And uh, Mike Beyer is a former candidate from Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. There was shenanigans. I know a lot about shenanigans and elections. You were removed, fought your way back in. That's how you do it. Don't let the bastards keep you down. And uh, Jordan Zakarin yeah. is, um, runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter, which I'm sure you are all extremely familiar with, um, and is a progressive everywhere. And we're going to talk about progressive guy stuff, okay? Cool. That's, like, that's what we're here yeah. to talk about today. stuff. Yeah, wait. dude stuff. Uh, uh, inshallah, we, as he likes to say, we like to include Joe Biden in this. So just even before we got into anything too much, uh, I'm hoping that Dorsey, we can just take a look at Joe Biden's statement, uh, his, you know, extremely gravitas statement-like statement on the 500,000 deaths we have had from COVID. Uh, let's run that. And then I just want to get both y'all's reaction to it and just talk about, as Comrade Lennon once said, what is to be done. Each day, I receive a small card in my pocket that I carry with me in my schedule. It shows the number of Americans who have been infected by or died from COVID-19. Today, we mark a truly grim, heartbreaking milestone. 500,071 dead. That's more Americans who have died in one year in this pandemic than in World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War combined. That's more lives lost to this virus than any other nation on Earth. But as we acknowledge the scale of this mass death in America, we remember each person in the life they lived. What do you think about the rhetoric, the kind of remembrance? Uh, I don't want to call it a, harm, a hallmark holiday because I do think a lot of people need the space and energy and time to grieve about what's happened to our country. But generally, uh, how do you think that it is landing? How is it sitting from a political communications point of view? What do you wish Joe Biden was doing differently? Because I'm sure it's something. Mike, you go ahead first. You know, from my point of view, and thanks for having me, um, I think it's an abject failure. Um, I couldn't, I watched the statement and when I was watching it, I couldn't help but feel like a sinking feeling in my gut. Like I was watching the eulogy for the country. Um, and maybe this is the last vestige of liberalism leaving my body, but I thought of presidents as somebody who were forward looking, who were, who were, T talking about taking action and this felt like burying the empire to me it's just it felt like failure it felt like he didn't have like i don't want to have my president be the guy who holds my hand at a funeral i want him to be doing presiding over some sort of big material change that's going to improve our lives and so for me it really 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 fell flat um it is really his brand 
he is, you know, kind of the consoling uncle of America in all those senses that it can mean. Mm-hmm. And, but for me, I, it never appealed to me. And, and I just kept thinking like, okay, where's my check? Where's the vaccines? How do I schedule a vaccine? And as opposed to like, man, I, I mean, I, yes, I absolutely feel terrible about the half a million Americans that have died. That's absurd. Yeah, no, That's real. outrageous. Yeah. But how are you going to prevent the next half million? You know, today on my show, I have a show on Twitch, Central Committee, that everyone could check out. Um, and I was talking about how there is new mutant forms of COVID that are now coming from America. There's a California strain that's apparently both more infective and more resistant to vaccines. And, um, you know, our, our failure in COVID may actually have more further, like, uh, uh, consequences for the world continuing the epidemic possibly not allowing us to escape as easily as we thought from vaccines. And I hope that's not the case. It's just something that could happen. And when I'm watching my president, I want to hear about how he's going to solve the problem, not how bad he feels. It's almost the Vietnam thing that jumps right out at me because like, it almost feels like a president giving a speech about how we really ought to get out of Vietnam in like 1974 or something. And just sort of people in the audience wondering who the last lucky person who gets to get shot is uh, but let me put words in your mouth what do you think george <laughs> well you know it's, i think what the difficult part about COVID just generally has been that because we're all stuck inside you know those of us who are lucky to be stuck inside it's hard hard to fully gauge unless you know a lot of people who passed away like the damage that has been done in a lot of ways you know it's it's like watching you know i live in new york city and you know like half a million people have died across the country that'd be like i don't know a quarter of manhattan or you know half of manhattan just being wiped out but you know, because it doesn't actually happen uh, while people are watching, it doesn't happen around you. It's kind of hard to gauge. So I think, you know, for Biden, you know, he's clearly blaming it on Trump and the previous administration. So I think that's kind of the purpose. I don't think he'd be holding this uh, vigil had he not been, you know, had he been present at the time. So I think in a way it's, I guess, his way of kind of burying the dead, but also burying the last administration. And, you know, I, I don't mind so much that he did this. I just wish there was, you know, in addition more of a plan. You know, we're going to, you know, I, I think it's important to get people some kind of closure, although, you know, family dying for no reason is not, you know, really going to get closure on that. But I don't mind that part. It's more like, what are we going to do going forward? Not just for the mutant strains, but, you know, giving people their stimulus checks, right? We're still a month away from that, perhaps. Uh, giving people, uh, you know, whether it's investing in jobs, investing in, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage, we're going to give up on that, apparently. So I don't, yeah. I, I, whatever, uh, have the have the thing. I think a lot of people, you know, need some sort of like feel like somebody cares, you know, because they've just been abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that's it, if it's going to be like, I, I feel your pain and then I'm not going to give you a, a, wa- a wage increase. I'm not going to give you a stimulus check. I'm not going <laughs> to give you something about that. Yeah. You know, uh, it sucks, right, guys? Oh, God. So that's my How long my, do you think he point. has, Jordan? How long do you think he has to, to uh, you know, really say this is the concrete stuff that I want and this is when it will come? I mean, all right, so we're going to get the stimulus by March 14th, perhaps. That's when it that's when it expires. So we got that maybe, and maybe there'll be minimum wage in there. Probably not, given the fact that, you know, Kirsten Cinema, despite the fact that Arizona already has a $12 minimum wage, not going for it. So I don't know. It depends on how much he wants to push. He seems like he wants to push near Tandon and, uh, you know, a bunch of neoliberal nominees more than he wants to push for the minimum wage. I think probably six months is when he has. You know, that's probably like the, the deadline to get most of these things done because Congress will go on vacation uh, in the summer 
And then by the fall, more people can be declaring for different running, races. Right? Yeah. yeah. So he's got six months and, uh, you know, he's got the American people. He's got good polling numbers. But unless he wants to put in the muscle, unless he wants to break his own dedication to, you know, Jim Crow, to the filibuster, unless he wants to, I think he should be expanding the Supreme Court. But he's going to get do maybe half the things he promised, if that, in the next six months. And that's going to be a problem. So he's got his chips. Mike, I mean, where would you, uh, you know, if you were actually, uh, if you were actually Joe Biden, uh, and what you remember from Obama was that he got to get one thing done. I, I mean, you know, this is this is a thing that's always uh, funny to me because uh, when I'm asked questions like this, I just simply draw from history on what presidents who accomplished a lot did, and they didn't act like passing legislation was some sort of fuel that they were burning, they use it as momentum. Mm. You know, the reason why we say the first 100 days is because FDR passed 17 major pieces of legislation in the first 100 days in the New Deal. Um, and so there's no reason you only have to do one bill in a year. You can do a lot of bills. You can do them very quickly. I urge you to go look at how quickly they moved to bail out Wall Street during when the COVID pandemic first started to bite. Mm -hmm. Um, what would I be doing as Joe Biden? Well, I have a much different uh, approach to power than someone like Joe Biden. I want people on the left to win elections, and I want them to win more elections. It doesn't seem that that's actually Joe Biden's goal. Um, something like D.C. statehood, Puerto Rican statehood, if they want it. Um, something like the Voting Rights Act. That would have been number one. Um, you know, the H.R. 1, the uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act, was is it actually an outstanding piece of legislation that would make the Democratic Party more powerful in the long run? You know, the PRO Act, making unions more powerful. There, you know, I ran as a state legislative candidate, and the juice for my campaign came from local volunteers and my local labor unions. Mm -hmm. That's where money comes from. That's where volunteers come from. That's where knowledge of the community comes from. Like when I'm knocking on doors, I had a teachers union uh, volunteer who became my like best friend and we were canvassing all these doors and she knew the community because she had been doing it for decades. Where is Joe Biden on these kind of like retail politics? I have no idea. And as far as like COVID-19 and the reaction to it and what we can do, the, the answer is he's doing exactly what they did with Obama. If you remember back in the Obama administration, they repealed DOMA. They repealed it in the lame duck session after they got slapped in the 2010 midterm. And Obama didn't want to do it. Obama did not want to repeal DOMA. He was forced to by Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. They were, they, he said, Obama was worried about another failure. And they were like, and Harry Reid went to him and he said, uh, we have the votes. What do you mean? We're repealing DOMA. I, I, don't, I, I don't give a shit what you say, Obama. And then, then they, so they did. And they put it on his desk and they ended up getting 60 some votes for it. They got some Republican votes. That's how I feel about Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders is doing the same thing with the $15 minimum wage. I don't give a shit what Joe Biden says about the parliamentarian. We're going to force this through, force Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to vote no on a COVID relief bill. I dare you. I double dog dare you. And then yeah. put it on Biden's desk and he'll sign it. He's irrelevant. His dumbass comments. It's the same thing with Obama. They just sit back. They don't, they're, if they're not going to lead, let us lead. And uh, that's kind of my attitude. And hopefully, you know, Bernie Sanders, I know he's making a big push to keep the $15 minimum wage in through the parliamentarian. But like Obama, as far as I'm concerned, 
They're just somebody with a finger and a pen. You know, irrelevant. You're, you're saying something that really resonates with a lot of what folks say on this show, on the Mickey show all the time, which is that Democrats need to exercise power. And even listening to you say, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I get, you know, stupid images in my head. But I was like, yeah, if you get the genie, you ask for more wishes. That's sort of what you're right. saying. It's like the first thing you do with your power should be to amass as much power as you have so that you can use it. Uh, one of the things right. people want to do is push, you know, economic stuff to the left. Uh, Dorsey, can we watch this clip, um, uh, which is an endorsement of universal basic income coming from a less likely source? Plus, a push in Sacramento to provide a universal basic income to foster children as they age out of the system and try to make a go on their own. What do you think, Jordan, I'm going to ask you this first, about some of these progressive ideas being tried in these little ways? Like you can see Bernie, you know, being like, well, why don't we try a little bit of uh, Medicare for all just for vaccination relief <laughs> and we'll see if people like it or not. Um, what do you think about the, this as a toe in the water for universal basic income? You know, I think going back to what Mike said real quick is that, yeah, Democrats don't want to use power. And I think it goes beyond Biden. You know, I don't think the people who are in the Senate necessarily want to use that power, even if it's not just mansion and cinema, right? They are the faces of obstructionism. They're the faces of filibustering. They're the faces of all that. We need to elect, elect Democrats that want to use power. And I think that's our problem right now. We don't have enough of those people. Of course, we can try and pressure them. I'm all for doing that. But that's the fundamental problem. And when we look at things like these, uh, you know, this program, I think it's great. I think that, you know, people who are in the foster, uh, everyone should be getting UBI. Uh, but people who are in the foster program who are left out of it, you know, who leave after a time, you know, they're at a fundamental disadvantage. They should be given that opportunity. They should be given that help. I don't know why we need a pilot on a very small level, you know, in states. That's you know, it's one of those things where, yeah. you know, Vermont or one of the other states tried a universal health care thing, but it's too small to do on any scale where it makes a difference or where it works unless you do it nationally. You know, maybe they, uh, a state can give some money to foster kids and that can work on a small level. But unless Democrats are willing to like take a big shot, like, they didn't start Medicare on a state level. They didn't start Social Security on the state level. Exactly. So unless, you know, unless we want to wait another 10 years, we're not going to, you know, these things aren't going to happen on the national level. And in terms of the first 100 days, you know, we see Republicans in Georgia, Iowa, Pennsylvania, all these states using their power immediately to revoke voting rights, to get rid of absentee balloting, to get rid of, in Georgia, souls to the polls, the Sunday voting, the early voting, it's blatantly racist. They're not worried about, you know, the politics of it, which are clearly terrible. They are bad politics. Republicans use absentee balloting all the time until 2020, they use their, you know, they use their big lie to justify it. Republicans hate them, but they're willing to use power. They want to use power. They want to get more power for themselves. Democrats don't want to do that. So they can do all these pilot programs in small places and cities and, you know, towns and state governments. But unless Democrats on the national level take action, A, expand voting rights, but do all these other things, it's never going to happen on the national level, no matter how many pilot programs and how many small successes they have. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think exactly that, that idea. It's like these little things can fail and be pointed to as failures when we know that that's the plan to begin with. That once you say that a program is not universal for even one person, immediately black people don't get it, right? You know, it's sort of like when people complain, well, I don't want to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college. You're like, I am excited to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college because that is a tiny fraction of well, who, you know, <laughs> just, every, you know what? Is. If a rich kid loses his student debt, I'm fine with it. 
Get rid well, of student debt. Well, it's 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 just <laughs> the, the, this argument. Yeah. It, you know, this is actually something that you, you know, if I could jump in and talk about Pennsylvania yeah, in particular, because I'm sure. you know I'm pretty much I I know politics pretty well here, and let me just say that we won the Pennsylvania Supreme Court their statewide elections. You know, for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, their terms last ten years, and a bunch of uh, Republican judges were forced to step down because they were caught sending emails with racist jokes like with obama with a bone in his nose bestiality porn from their official judge like email account so they were forced to step down and um we won these really great uh judges and now we have a 5-2 majority on the pennsylvania supreme court that's part of why you know they were so mad about pennsylvania because those democratic judges then went and protected voting rights in 2020 uh and so the Republican response to this is they want to gerrymander the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Instead of having seven statewide judges, they want to have seven judicial districts and have judges represent a district so they can gerrymander four hardcore Republican-leaning seats and then, and then pack the three Democrats, have like a Pittsburgh seat, a Philadelphia seat, and maybe something like, you know, the suburbs, suburbs of Philadelphia. And then the rest of the state will be gerrymandered in a way that allows them to have a majority in this Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They don't care about democracy or anything. And they are going to do this constantly. In North Carolina, they want to pack the court. They've expanded the court in a number of other states at the state judicial level. So when they have the power and they need to pack the court, they immediately do. The Republicans would do that at the national level. If we ever got a majority on the Supreme Court, they would pack the court if they had the power to do so. Um, All of these things, it's not a matter of like, if the Republicans would do it, they are limited by only one thing. Can they do it? If they can, they will. And it's, I don't know what it's going to take to make Democrats realize that's the case. Um, I believe that if we allow the Republicans to gerrymander after 2020, there is no way the Democrats are going to take power in Congress again, at least in my lifetime, barring some sort of huge huge result because in Pennsylvania, they already have a geographic advantage. You know, mm-hmm. Democrats tend to be more concentrated. Um, and we have a test case here just to wrap it up. Sorry for the long monologue, but in Pennsylvania, no, 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 it's okay. In Pennsylvania, our democratic Supreme court threw out our congressional map back before 2020. And we picked up four seats from them drawing fair maps. They were not biased towards the Democrats. They were just fair. So it went from, then there's 18 Congress people that are elected in Pennsylvania in the House. It went from being a, uh, what is that, 14-4 to 9-9. And it was this pretty much the same performance <laughs> as, as before. Um, and that, and you could do that, and they control the state legislatures and trifectas all over the country, and they're going to do that again. So Nancy Pelosi's majority is going to go out the window when they draw the maps new for the patterns of yeah. Democrats from the 2020 election, unless something is done immediately. As uh, famous boxer and convicted rapist Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, Jordan, I want to give you the last word on uh, what you think can actually be done in response to these things that Mike so eloquently tells us is going on. And then also make sure that you plug um, progressives everywhere newsletter. And uh, Mike also make sure that we talk about central committee. I've actually have been writing a lot about this on the progressives everywhere newsletter, uh, progressives everywhere at substack.com. You know, I talked a few weeks ago about 
uh, packing the courts. I've been talking to people about expanding the Supreme Court. There's no reason why the Supreme Court has nine justices. It used to be, it used to correspond to uh, lower courts and they stopped doing that. And so there should be 13. There should be 13 seats on the Supreme Court. Democrats, all they have to do is get rid of the filibuster. They don't even have to pass a constitutional amendment. They can pass the fil- uh, get rid of the filibuster, pass the Voting Rights Act, the you know, John Lewis Act, the For the People Act that gets rid of, you know, it repopulates what the Voting Rights Act used to be and adds more protections. Then they can very easily, with the 50 plus one, expand the Supreme Court. And it is the only way. Because the Supreme Court, the past one, just gutted the Voting Rights Act. It gutted uh, you know, all those other things. And Clarence Thomas, in a decision released yesterday, it was a dissent, thankfully, but he wanted to he wanted to question what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in 2020. So did Scalia, so did, Gor- so did Gorsuch. So they don't care about even state Supreme Courts. They don't care about what the precedence is. They don't care about their so-called federalism. They don't care about any of that. They will undo any democracy they can. They will destroy every right to vote that possibly is. They do not care how unpopular it is because they will choose their voters. And so Kirsten Sinema can go ahead and block every reform, she block every filibuster. But in Arizona, which is being, again, the state Supreme Court is now gonna be uh, gerrymandered. And the, the, sorry, the state Supreme Court is Republican. It is, go- mm-hmm. the, it is going to be gerrymandered on a legislative level and redistricted on a legislative level even more so now that the Republicans have replaced the nonpartisan head of the redistrib- uh, redistricting committee with a person who leans to the right. She can do that. She can go, she can go filibuster all she wants. A, she's gonna piss off the people who worked for 10 years to turn Arizona blue, uh, all, the, all the Latino and union workers who mm-hmm. turned Arizona blue. And then voting rights, more voting rights, uh, more laws to get rid of voting rights are on in, are being proposed in Arizona than anywhere else. So she's going to lose. 2024 she'll be done. So many Democrats will be done. In Georgia, there's no chance that they will win re-election if, they, if Republicans pass all these laws. So unless Democrats are willing to use power, they're not going to keep power. They are not going to be able to ever attain power again. And even if they're selfish, awful people in Congress, and I'm sure there's a lot of them like that, do it for your own good. Do it for your own good and retaining power, because otherwise you're done, the party's done, and that's going to be it. Do it because it feels good. Yeah. That's <laughs> maybe our final message. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Republicans aren't. Thanks so much to both of you. Uh, uh, we're going to have to take a quick break. And then uh, up next, we're going to have our cross-Atlantic crosstalk group. But also make sure you check out Central Committee on Twitch, which is Mike's show. All right. Check it out. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Namiki Show. I am not Namiki Konst. I am her hopelessly not as good replacement, Arun Chaudhary, but doing my best. Uh, and this is a segment that I'm super excited about, which is our cross-Atlantic crosstalk, where we are going to talk uh, both about Europe and America to the American audience, which is the opposite of what I'm normally doing, which I call Amerisplaining, which is explaining exactly like, you know, how like the voter suppression happens in like Milwaukee, Wisconsin or something uh, when everyone gets super concerned about small counties in America. However, we are not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about the revenge of the center and how it is taking place in various permutations in various places around the world. And with us to talk about that are Julia Doubleday, who is here uh, with us from Washington, DC. 
She is a, a Democratic progressive campaigner. She is a campaign manager for Julie Oliver, who ran in the Texas 25th, and also was a data specialist on Beto O'Rourke's 2018 campaign. And you had a job of some sort on Bernie 2016. It was either data or field related, probably a bit of both, to be honest, they always are. Uh, Ludovico Manzoni, who is with us from Milan, Italy, uh, who uh, is a campaigner, an elected official, and a progressive activist, and who I get a chance to work with actually on campaigns in Italy from time to time. And then finally, Ellie Mayo Hagen, who has a new job. She's a head of class, which is a think tank. Uh, hold, I want to say the name exactly correct, which is the Center for Labor and Social Studies which is, I mean, I think really you've just taken it over like today or yesterday or something. It's very fresh. So that is super exciting uh, and is a labor activist and someone who I got to know on the Corbyn campaign in 2019. So just because uh, uh, we'll go in time zone pressures, I want to talk to you first, Julia. Uh, what is going on with Joe Biden? And I ask that in a big way. That's a huge question. So let me narrow it down. Like in Italy or in the UK, as we will hear, progressives have kind of held their noses and supported candidates they normally wouldn't support because they've been told otherwise fascism will encroach. Uh, how is this project going so far in the US? It's been uh, a rough week, right? Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really broad question. Can you hear me on this microphone? Yes, you sound great. I think it's, I think it's a really broad question. Um, I think that, you know, if I'm going to frame Biden as like, yes, I expected him to be this progressive champion, and now he's in office, and he's not a progressive champion, you know, his immigration, uh, his pledge to end the deportations for the first 100 days of his administration, uh, has not panned out. He's deported. His administration has deported over 26,000 people in 29 days. Um, you know, we certainly know that people are disappointed about the $2,000 checks. They're now being nickeled and dimed uh, down to $1,400 checks. Either amount is sort of an insult to people who may have been unemployed this entire last year, who are struggling with uh, lost jobs and lost businesses. Um, you know, the, the student loan crisis, he recently sort of made this scoffing remark about not wanting to forgive uh, massive amounts of student debt because only rich people have those loans because they went to these elite schools, which is obviously untrue because rich people don't carry tens of thousands of dollars of high interest debt for no reason. Um, so there are a lot of things progressives are really unhappy about. That's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's also his um, cabinet, which we're seeing is it's not just conservative. It's basically, you know, he ran on, I'm, I'm going to bring us back to normal. And his cabinet is back to normal in the sense that it's, it's partially Barack Obama's candidate. You know, he nominated the same uh, Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Vilsack, who just got confirmed yesterday. Um, and then we've got at the, at the State Department, Blinken, who also was in the State Department under Obama. So he's really carrying out the promises he made to other people who also worked very hard to help elect him uh, centrist. So, you know, as a progressive, do I think that he's betraying his progressive base? Not really, because I don't think he ever really had a progressive base. I think that People like myself, a lot of us voted for Biden because he was a better alternative to Trump. And in terms of keeping the promise of not being Donald Trump, he's adequately adequately doing that. You know, he's he's Joe Biden. He's not Donald Trump. So that's what I expected. And that's what we've got. Well, just a quick follow up. I mean, what is what are there any 
sticks that progressives hold to hold Joe Biden accountable uh, to what I think some people thought was, you know, a hostage vote, you know, like you got to do this, yeah. you got you to do the thing. Are there consequences for that or are there not enough American progressives to make consequences for that? I mean, you tell me. I think that our movement is definitely growing and that organizing is always important. It's always going to be important. Do I think that right now progressives have a lot of tools in the arsenal to hold Biden accountable? Um, no. I mean, right now, I think that we have a generally pretty pretty centrist um, Congress and administration coming into power. They're going to use that power um, that we've given them. And we've given up, you know, by voting them in, we've given up the, the bargaining chip that we had. That's not to say that organizing isn't important. It's just that we have to understand that Biden and his entire administration um, exist in this very large ecosystem of influence that includes, you know, not only the politicians that we elected, but also their staff, the administration, um, the media on the Hill, the think tanks, the consultants, um, the lobbyists. There's a gigantic ecosystem in D.C., and it all sort of agrees with itself. So um, in terms of getting progressives into those um, sort of other arms of the U.S. government, I would say that we're very far from being able to do that. That being said, obviously, there's more of us than there are of them. So it does just come down to being able to build these organizations like the Justice Dems, like Sunrise Movement, as well as unions. I mean, unions are really crucial if we look at what the teachers unions have been able to do during the the tail end of the COVID crisis here, not, you know, demanding not to go back to work unless they're vaccinated. You know, the grocery store workers didn't have the power to do that. So the way that we can be influential over the, these people is essentially, I think, just to um, wield our power as workers, um, you know, join unions. And definitely, you know, if we had the power to, to say, have a national strike, that would be something that they would have to pay attention to. Right now, we don't have the power to do that. So I would say we have Right now, the tools in our toolkit, we have very scattered and limited power to be able to influence this current administration just because there are a lot of very wealthy people that put him there that have a lot more power than we do right now. Yeah, no, true. We say for the Justice Democrats, though, because it certainly does seem like the imaginary primary that AOC is waging with Chuck Schumer is actually yielding some real results. Um, look, in, in, in the Democrats in America, we have seen clearly with numbers that progressives are the minority in the party. And, you know, this comes along with that. Ellie, in the UK, that's not something that we know for sure. You know, we saw very recently Jeremy Corbyn, a left-wing progressive candidate, actually become the leader of the party uh, for a few cycles. Um, there is a different dynamic happening there with the ascension uh, of Keir Starmer, um, which is not just to not listen to the left, but seemingly to punish the left and people on the left. Uh, what do you think are the differences in that dynamic? And like, what is going on for the American audience where we can imagine, you know, Joe Biden getting in a fight with AOC, but we can't imagine him expelling her from the party? I think it has to do with um, the fact that the British left is more, has a bigger history of taking power um, than perhaps the American left. Um, we have more, we have higher union density. I mean, it, it's, it's fallen since the eighties, but it's still higher than in the U S and, you know, the, the left of the labor party has taken power in the past. It, it took power in the eighties and it's always been a, a kind of factor of the labor party that the membership has always been to the left of the leadership. 
um, with the exception of the, the, the Corbyn years. So there's this sort of idea on the Labour right, and the Labour right is not a homogenous group. It's a it's a sort of varied group um, that have different kinds of right wing politics. So some are more right wing because they're more capitalist, and others are more right wing because they're very socially conservative. But the one thing that they always agree on is that it's kind of their role to save the Labour Party from itself. And that essentially means not allowing the left to get a foothold. Because um, I guess what they tell themselves is that the left doesn't understand ordinary people and um, isn't fundamentally isn't able to win elections. Um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's more ideological than that. I think they ideologically have a problem with the left. Um, but what that means is that if the left does gain a foothold and then loses, which it usually does because it's, it's incredibly structurally weak. So I would say it's not that the left in, in the UK is completely out of touch with ordinary people. It's that because it was marginalized in the eighties, it's still quite structurally weak. And whereas, um, the center is very institutionally powerful, so it's quite difficult for the left to win. And so when the left loses, um, then the, they're sort of, when the centrists take power, then they kind of sort of punish the left really as a sort of disciplining measure. And I think, and I, I suppose to be fair to Keir Starmer himself, I don't think that is actually his, like, I don't think that is actually what he would instinctively do because um, he's not particularly political in either direction. Um, although I do understand he used to vote with the right in his local party, but um, I think it's more that he's sort of surrounded himself with former Blairites mm. um, and people from that wing of the party. And, and they will probably feel like that they need to sort of, yeah, punish the left as a disciplining measure because um, they view Jeremy Corbyn as really responsible for all of the problems that the Labour Party has, which is about as unserious as thinking that Jeremy Corbyn is not responsible for any of the problems that the Labour Party has. Right. Both things are probably a little a bit off. Uh, yeah, exactly. I will say, while, you know, we're describing the American Democratic Party, it's very easy to see, look, I have a very high and a very dim view of politicians having worked with folks like, you know, very closely. One of the dimmer views I have of them is that I do think the thing they react to the most is the industrial applause complex. So whoever is applauding for them the most and sending them the most satisfying text messages about what a good job they are doing is probably the person they end up listening to the most. I say that as a middle-aged man, I fall victim to this all the time myself. Uh, so like, so I understand who the American industrial applause complex is for Joe Biden when he nominates Neer Tannen for something or when he does whatever. Who is Keir Starmer's industrial applause co complex? Who is telling him right now he's doing such a good job? If, as you say, the left is naturally actually more united than a more fractious center and right in the Labour Party. Um, I wouldn't say that, I, I guess, is the Labour left more united? I'm not sure I would say that. Um, in terms of who he, um, the Labour Party is basically just a hot mess of arguments. I think that's one thing that, that you know, on all sides. Um, in terms of who he, uh, his industrial applause complex, where that comes from with him, I think, uh, first of all, the establishment. So I think one thing that's interesting about like the sort of political politicians in the sort of mainstream of the UK 
is that they would rather fail conventionally than win unconventionally. You know, mm. the most important driver for them is is to sort of be part of the establishment. And I think that like that's something that I'm not. I, I'm why I don't mean that when I say that that Labour leaders don't want to win um, win elections. What I mean is that it's very important to them to be part of the establishment to the point where they don't they are are reluctant to do unconventional things in order to win. And so the first is the establishment, you know. Um, so I would say that that means like uh, senior political journalists. Um, and actually, uh, Keir Starmer has had a lot of favourable media coverage. Um, and I think well, quite easy media coverage. And I think that the, the, the people around him will view that as a success. Um, but, I mean, the polling kind of suggests that it's it's... Not a disaster, but it's not. It's really not getting him anywhere, though, is it? We're yeah, seeing exactly. Just a couple points here and there, which seems yeah. shocking considering what Boris Johnson is doing. Uh, he, and, his, and his personal ratings, and actually the party's ratings, have started to fall now as well. Um, and um, so, yeah, first the establishment, and then secondly, um, the Labour Party has focused all its energy on trying to win back a set of constituencies that, that traditionally voted Labour but were lost in 2019. And I guess if I was trying to try and think of an equivalent US state, it might be somewhere like Wisconsin. So like somewhere kind of Rust Belty with like an older white working class that feels totally. like behind. I know, that tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so basically any sort of uh, outlets that are perceived as, as sort of ventriloquizing the needs of the of those people i think if they receive if, if they were to praise keir starmer that would be seen as a victory as well so i think that's where his um his yeah he wants his applause to come from and certainly not the left i actually do wonder if maybe they view uh like anger from the left as a sign that they're doing something right which i think is a is a problem because i just don't think that it, it's possible for labor to win without its base um but yeah, certainly not the left. So it's, I mean, it's interesting. We have, uh, you know, two folks who are dealing with their built-in audiences and trying to decide what they're going to do. Ludovico, in Italy, we have an entire governmental crisis sparked by our favorite Italian centrist, Matteo Renzi, who seemingly doesn't have an audience. So tell me, how does he do it? He has a just for the people playing, uh, keeping track in the American game at home, he has a party that polls at 3%, uh, which is the threshold of, getting, of being able to even be a party. I don't even know if it has that anymore. And yet seems to have brought down the Italian government and recreated it in the image of centrism. Tell me about this fantastic, amazing <laughs> man. <laughs> Right. So no, unfortunately, indeed, he was able. Indeed, he was able to do this. Uh, why? Uh, partly, it's because the Italian institutional system is always very unstable. It's a parliamentary system, and as many parliamentary system with a multi-party system, it's you need uh, you need to basically have broad coalitions to be able to govern. Francis' party right now is pulling at 2%, actually, I believe, but he still have a lot of MPs. He still have a lot of senators, although they didn't receive any vote because they were elected in the Democratic Party and then they made a split. Renzi split the right. from the PD, yeah. which is the equivalent of the Democratic Party, to form his little party. So he made a, a small sort of conservative party out of the, the center-left. 
And, and he had just enough votes in parliament to sabotage the whole government and make it implode, unfortunately. So where does this get him and where does this get other people who in a country as famously allergic to the center as Italy is? Uh, like, is this, is this just one man, you know, who sort of misses the days of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton uh, being able to sing that song? Or is he actually putting together a new viable coalition of the center through this grandstanding? So there is a political interpretation and a psychological one. The uh -huh. uh, psychological one, it's the easier one. He's pathologically incapable of not being at the center of the attention. Partly that, and partly I think he turned in the Joker, uh, you know, that some men just want to watch the world burn and therefore he opens government crisis every time he can. The political one is, I mean, he succeeded in his goal. We now, by any definition of the standard and measurement, have a new government, the Draghi government, which is more to the center. This what everyone the knows, right. a, a, a Goldman Sachs sort yeah. of inspired but, but, government. And I mean, we have Salvini's party and Berlusconi's party now support the government. This so is the right way. Without yeah. even focusing on Draghi himself, the government undoubtedly moved uh, more to the right. The maddening thing about this is that Renzi will now probably be way less relevant because first he could kind of um, hold the government hostage with his votes. Now, since the government is a gigantic and senseless coalition with everyone inside from the far right uh, uh, to the left, uh, he is irrelevant in party, in uh, parliamentary politics. So, yeah, I don't know, like, he, yeah. He was able to destroy the government. Good job for him. And now he cannot control it anymore. How does this affect specifically the Partito Democratico's future, though? Because I think what we, especially in the Anglo world, looking at America and the UK, would love to know is if you can convince some of your neolibs to spin off into a side project, is this a good way to get them into a boat and sink it? Or is this actually the unraveling of your own project? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think his party and other small centrist neoliberal party will give a practical demonstration to the fact that there aren't uh, highways to the center, as many people try to affirm in Italy, because they're doing very badly right now electorally. Still, there are a lot of people who kind of share the line into the Democratic Party. So yeah, maybe the party moved to the left just for the fact of his absence, but it didn't transform on an identity point of view. I will say uh, both to Julia and Ellie, and either of you can respond to this, uh, like one of the sort of uh, most frustrating things when you follow Italian politics closely was seeing, and actually, no, this happened in the UK also, was seeing after the Biden election, all of these sort of articles, you know, what our center left can learn, what Keir Starmer can learn from Joe Biden, what Italy can learn from Joe Biden, the Joe Biden model, this is the Joe Biden thing. I would say, uh, Julia, I mean, how, how do you interpret this interpretation of the world of our election? Uh, and what caveats would you try to tack to that? I mean, I think it's major goalpost moving. You know, we know that in 2016, we had Hillary Clinton going up against Trump and her defeat was seen as this really catastrophic, unexpected thing. Um, and Biden is very much a candidate in the same mold of Hillary Clinton. You know, he has a very 
deep uh, background with the establishment. He's very much a subscriber to neoliberal economics. He's a center of the road Democrat. Um, and so him defeating Trump during this really horrific, I mean, cannot be exaggerated how horrific the uh, COVID response has been here with um, 500,000 people now dead. Um, for him to win, that should have been a gimme, right? So I don't think we should be necessarily taking lessons away from a campaign, which, as you were saying earlier, basically had to threaten a lot of us into voting for him. It was like, look, vote for me or you're going to die. Um, and I didn't want to die. So, I mean, that's how a lot of people felt. I don't think that that's a great way to build a long term coalition that's going to, um, you know, be able to uh, build a stable long term government like I personally, I just feel that the Biden coalition is they feel that it's quite strong and internationally they want to bill it as quite strong. But it actually sort of goes back to something you were mentioning, um, Ellie, you were mentioning about the UK, which is that, um, you know, in the US, they really like to concern troll about leftist candidates about whether they can win. We're so worried they're going to lose. So anytime that there's a further left candidate running, there's a lot of press around how can this person win? It's a big test for the left. It's a big test for the left. If they lose, this means the left is bad and it, it can't win elections. And then if they lose, there's a big follow-on um, campaign to talk about how we risked everything and it didn't work out. So this means the left can't win elections. But if the person on the left wins the election, they don't follow on and say, you know what, Jamal Bowman won and Cori Bush won, and this means the left wins elections, and this means we have to only run leftists from now on. They only do that, um, you know, ideologically with people that they agree with. So um, it's this goalpost moving that happens. Uh, if you're in the center and you win, it means centrism will always win, and it's amazing, and it's the best thing you can do. If you're on the left and you win, then it's a fluke, and it's weird, and we don't really understand why, but it probably won't happen again. Ellie, like when you think about it, like one of the differences between the UK 2019 election and uh, the regional elections in Italy, both in Emilia Romagna and in Toscana and in the US election is that progressives, young people, et cetera, didn't actually come on board in the end or, you know, or there was, you know, a lot of folks like the coalition, the kind of grand coalition to defeat Boris Johnson didn't come together. Uh, what do you see as the differences there? Why was that message sort of, you know, not, why did that fall on more deaf ears? The kind of popular front argument. You mean in, in the If we all band election? together, we can be conservatives, we can beat the right, it's gonna take all of us together. Uh, Brexit is the reason. Um, Brexit divided what, what uh, Labour's coalition because, um, I mean, if we stick with the sort of uh, like using the Democrats as, a, um, as an analogue. So, you know, the Democrats are a coalition of like, to put it crudely, like people in Wisconsin and people in California, right? And if you had like an issue that people in Wisconsin and people in California suddenly found themselves on the opposite side of, and that was like became the biggest issue in America... Um, then you would, you know, then it's unlikely that the Democrats would win. So basically, like, uh, Brexit was, um, so there was a lot of Labour voters that wanted to leave the EU. There was actually more Labour voters that wanted to remain. But because of the particular way our, uh, our election system works, the ones that leave were sort of seen as, who wanted to leave were seen as more important because they could mm -hmm. sort of swing the election. 
So this just created a huge dilemma for Labour. It, it created like a huge problem and it, it, it meant that they were sort of stuck in this like paralysis. And it also meant that Labour's more sort of centre-left voters, they were sort of more towards the centre, had an excuse to sort of leave the Labour Party and, and kind of vote for someone else because... Basically, the Tories in this country, you know, they're historically known as the nasty party. We have this phenomenon mm -hmm. we call like shy Tories, which is people not wanting to admit that they're Tories because they're sort of seen as not very nice. And so there's a, a whole kind of set of voters who would never vote for them on the basis that it's just not what one does. You know, it's just not the thing to do. But who were equally uncomfortable with like Jeremy Corbyn's kind of uh, politics and what Brexit did, and also the anti-Semitism crisis did, was it gave those people an excuse to not vote for Jeremy Corbyn in a way that uh, like preserved their sort of moral integrity. Mm -hmm. So Labour lost a lot of people that way, but they also lost a lot of Leave voters who were just frustrated by the whole Brexit process and just wanted to leave the EU because we ended up leaving um, nearly four years after we first voted to leave rather than straight away. And so that just massively fractured Labour's coalition and um, and we weren't able to sort of come together to defeat the Tories. And I do think that, like, there's a lot of factors involved, but I do think that Jeremy Corbyn should bear some responsibility for that. I mean, absolutely. I was on doorsteps with you. And believe me, all you heard about was not voting for that man. And that usually meant Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Ludovico, look... Uh, there is a progressive price tag that has to be paid in Italy. Uh, young people, leftists, people outside the party, people from actual left parties are not just voting for the center-left candidates. Sometimes they're even choosing to vote to send the strongest message as members of the Partito Democratico. Uh, how much longer can the party get away with this without offering something that progressives want? I mean, to be fair, I don't think they're voting for us right now. So we're getting away with it in the sense that they're voting for someone else. <laughs> right, and, they're not uh, voting for the wrong people. No, but in Toscana, for instance. No, numbers, no, okay. In, in broader elections where yeah. we have a coalition and they're just like See. one versus one candidate, yes. In political election, I mean, last time we got 18%. We can get away with it as long as we're willing to stay a minority. I would hope we try to become the majority again, perhaps at a certain point. Although it's a very difficult process because I feel that, um, I mean, yes, we can always work as the, uh, for lack of alternatives and desperation. <laughs> Those sort of people might still vote for us. But until you have a strong identity, until people know what your party stands for, uh, it will be very hard, in my opinion, to rebuild that kind of coalition. You're telling me you can't just build everything on desperation? I've been living my life incorrectly, Ludovico, and you're pointing me towards that. <laughs> Thank you, all three of you, for coming on. Appreciate you so much for my first cross-Atlantic crosstalk, and I hope if we do it again that we can count on y'all. Of course. Thank you, Arun. Thanks for having us. Thank you Thank so you. much. And you were great, by the way. You were a great oh, host. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Have her back where you need to be. Uh, we have some shout outs. This is the part of the show. You all can take off, by the way, if you want. Uh, this is the part of the show I understand the least when Omiki starts speaking like YouTube talk, but I'm going to try it. Uh, thank you, Micah Gelfriend, for the super heat donation. And thanks, Central Committee, for the raid. 
that is, of course, uh, we gave a shout out to that before as Mike's organization uh, show on Twitch. Shout out to Professor Harvey K and everyone for mixing it up in the live chat on YouTube and Twitch. Uh, a big thanks to MIDI Doctors and Mario for working the agri uh, algorithms. And a huge thanks to our YouTube mobs. That's Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. And to Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping our live chats troll free. I know that can't be easy. Your efforts are so appreciated. Thank you. Uh, and to everyone who put up with me instead of your usual host, I appreciate your efforts and energy. Let me know if there's anything uh, you want me to follow up on with you all on social media. And I hope to get the opportunity to do this again sometime. Mm -hmm.